your son's name up there. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Hi, Victoria. Uh, we'd like to uh, offer a special welcome to our alumni who are here for homecoming. Uh, welcome. Uh, I hope that while you're here, you would be reminded of the ways in which God uh, transformed you in this place, and that you would reach out and say hello to students and even pray for students who are now where you once were. Uh, students, next Wednesday is our fall day of prayer. We're going to offer uh, yeah, a, a unique, yeah. Um, it's going to be a little bit different this year. We're going to offer a number of unique opportunities to pray on Monday during chapel. I'll kind of outline those and what they're going to look like. Uh, but now I'm excited to introduce our speaker for this morning, uh, Vanitha Rendall Reisner. Uh, Vanitha is a writer. She has a special gift of insight and honesty and an ability to communicate those things with eloquence uh, and even beauty. She's a blog called Dance in the Rain. She writes for Desiring God Ministries. And last year, she published a book called The Scars That Have Shaped Me, How God Meets Us in Suffering. She and her husband, Joel, are members at Christ Covenant Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, and they have four daughters. Will you please give a warm Scots welcome to Vanitha Rendall Reisner. as I stood in the elementary school hallway, right beside the side door exit. My mother was going to be so proud of me. I had just gotten back from being in the hospital for nine months, and I had never been able to walk home from school by myself. But today I was going to try it and surprise my mother. So I pushed open the side door and started walking. After about a minute or so, I heard someone shouting, Hey, you're a cripple. You don't belong here. And then I felt the sting of gravel on me and boys laughing. I was terrified. I didn't know what to do, but I kept on walking. Pretty soon, a short, heavy-set boy stepped out from with, among the shadows, and he started imitating the way that I walked, swaying from side to side. Then he pushed me with a look of disgust. I tried to keep my balance, but I fell backwards onto the asphalt. The boys were surprised, and they ran away. And I sat on the floor, uh, on the ground, fighting back the tears. I didn't know who these boys were, and I didn't know why they had done this. But I did know that all of a sudden, I was in a world where I was totally different from everyone else. Well, I dragged myself up um, by a nearby bench, and I started the short walk home. My mother was watching from the window, and she ran outside and said, Benita, you made it home by yourself for the first time. Your sister isn't with you. And I smiled, and I said, yes, I did. And I walked in the house, and she poured me a glass of milk. I didn't tell her what happened. I was too embarrassed. I was seven years old. I wish I could say that was an isolated incident, but I dealt with bullying throughout my elementary school years and I never told anyone. I didn't know why it happened, and I didn't know what to say. I just knew that I was different. But one thing I did know, for me, I did know that there was no God. 
And if there was a God, he certainly wasn't good. My parents believed in God, but I just couldn't. I felt that a good God wouldn't let people suffer. My family talked about God all the time, but I tuned them out. God had not done anything for me. I don't know if any of you can relate to that feeling where others have faith, that your classmates, people around you have faith, but deep inside, you don't feel like you have faith. Maybe you feel like an outsider and you want to fit in. That's how I felt. My family was from India and I always felt different. I felt everyone was different from me and I wanted to be like everyone else. Well, so let me back up and start from the beginning. I was born in India to Christian parents. When I was three months old, I contracted polio. Napoleon had been eradicated by that time, so the doctors had no idea what it was. So what started as a mild case of polio, which would have meant maybe I had slight weakness in my leg, um, ended up being much worse because the doctors gave me cortisone to lower my fever. And within 24 hours, I was completely paralyzed. I was a quadriplegic. And then the doctor said, oh no, we find out. We realized she had polio. Well, my family left India so that I could have good medical care. And I had my first surgery in England when I was two. And by the time I was 12, I had 21 operations. Well, my earliest memories were of the hospital. I lived in a Shriners hospital, which, um, where I stayed for three months after every surgery. And I lived on a ward with other kids, and my parents could only visit me on weekends. And then one time I was in the hospital for nine months straight. I was on my back in a body cast. And it was coming back from that surgery that I encountered those boys that I talked about at the beginning. So hospital life was hard, but being home was harder. When I was young, I just coped with the situation. But as I got older, I grew angry. Angry about everything. Well, when I got to high school, I got involved in FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Now, I was not an athlete, and I was not a Christian, but all the cute guys in my high school went to FCA, so I went too. So a friend of mine and I would sit in the back, and we would talk about boys. We did not take the God stuff too seriously. But one day, she went away on a retreat, and she came back and said to me, God is real. And I was like, oh no, she's not going to sit in the back and talk about guys with me. She's going to want to talk about God. And I was right. So one day, after another one of our conversations about God that I was getting really tired of, I went home and I prayed a simple prayer. I said, God, if you are real, please show me. Then I went to sleep. I wasn't really expecting an answer, but the next morning I woke up and I thought, you know, I need to give this God thing another chance. So I opened the Bible and I said, okay, God, show me something, which is a little arrogant. I don't recommend that, but God meets us. And um, so I opened the Bible actually to Leviticus and I read about, you know, don't boil a cat in its mother's milk. And I thought, okay, this is, this is what I've always thought about the Bible. And then all of a sudden I thought, okay, I'll flip another time. And I flipped the Bible open to John 9. And Jesus is talking to his disciples, and it says, As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man sinned or his parents, said Jesus, 
But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. I was stunned. It was as if the God of the universe had jumped off the pages of scripture and was speaking directly to me. It was a moment I will never forget that this handicap was no accident. God had created me for this, that the work of God would be displayed in my life. I knelt down by the side of my bed and committed my life to a God I didn't know, but was certain knew me. I was 16 years old. Well, after high school, I went to college at Virginia and my faith started to grow. Now, college was a pretty carefree time for me, I have to say. But I had a few problems, like on the FCA beach trip. We had rented two houses, um, one for the girls and one for the guys, and they were side by side. And the first afternoon, um, the girls were laying out on the second floor, and one of the guys came from the house next door, ran inside, and slammed the sliding glass door and locked us on the screen porch, on the porch, not screen porch. And before we could figure out what was happening, I felt freezing cold water on us. The guys had gotten the hose out, and they were spraying us down. After that, one of the guys in the group came out with the Bible and said, read from 1 Peter, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Well, I personally was not very interested in the blessing. I was totally willing to forgo that blessing, and repaying evil for evil sounded really good. So I went with that option. So all the girls got together and made a batch of chocolate X-Lax brownies, which may or may not have been my idea. And um, we took it over to the guy's house with a note saying, you know, do not repay evil for evil. You know, we are willing to forgive and forget. Um, some people actually stole all the toilet paper from their house, but that was not my idea. I have my standards. But the next morning at, um, at our group devotions, the guys all said it was a moving experience. So that, uh, that pretty much sums up college for me. Um, I was involved in a Christian fellowship. I was in a Bible study. I had a quiet time. But often I felt empty. And I wondered, is there really more to the Christian life than this? Maybe you felt that way before. My faith felt thin and fragile. It felt shallow. My faith, in a lot of ways, was based on what I had been taught by other people. And I wish I knew then what I knew now, that I need to lean into God every day, cry out to him with big things and everyday struggles. But for me, it was the trials of life that taught me how to press into God. Well, after college, I worked for a few years and then went to grad school. And I met and married a classmate named Dave, and we had uh, a daughter named Katie. When Katie was two, I went into the hospital, I mean, went into the doctor for a routine 20-week ultrasound. I was pregnant with another child, and we found out that our unborn son, Paul, had a hypoplastic left heart. That means he only had half of a heart, and the doctor said he needed to have surgery at birth in order to survive. So a high school friend of mine, John, is a pediatric cardiologist, and he helped us figure out what to do, and we decided to have surgery in Michigan, where the most successful surgeon in the world was operating at that time. So Paul was born in Michigan, surgery went great, and so when he was three months old, we brought him home from the hospital. 
He had a sunny disposition. He was a really happy baby, and he did, he did so well. Well, we couldn't go back to Michigan for his checkup, so we were going to a local doctor in Chapel Hill. And one week, the doctor wasn't there, and his substitute, his partner, was there, and he saw Paul and said, Paul is doing so well. He doesn't need to be on all of this medication. I don't think kids need to be over-medicated. So he took him off everything. And we were super happy. We thought, okay, this means he's going to be great. Well, I was talking to John. This was Friday. And I was talking to John Friday night, and I was telling him the good news. And John said, wait, that's not okay. He needs that medicine to survive. And I said, well, what should I do? It's Friday night. I, and he said, well, you could go to the emergency room, or you could probably wait till Monday, but you need to do this Monday morning. And I thought, okay, we'll call first thing Monday morning. Well, two days later, in the middle of the night on Sunday, um, Paul woke up to nurse as usual, and then Dave was holding him, and he screamed and went limp in Dave's arms. Dave went with him. We called 911, and Dave went with him to the hospital in the ambulance. And I stayed at home with Katie and called some friends who were going to come over so that I could go. And while I was waiting, I called John. And I said, John, Paul, we took him to the emergency room. And John said, I'm so sorry. And I said, okay, I'm glad you're sorry, but what should I do? What should I tell them? What medicine does he need to be back on? And all John kept saying is, I'm so sorry. So I hung up the phone, and I got on my knees, and I begged God not to take the life of my son. Well, our friends came, and they took me to the hospital. And when I got there, I saw the nurse at the front desk, and I explained who I was, and I said, I'd like to go back and see my son. And she said, I'm so sorry. And I said, well, thanks, but I really just want to see him. And she realized I didn't know what she meant. She said, I'm so sorry. Your son is dead. I felt like I had been kicked in the stomach. I didn't even know what to think. And I stumbled into the room where they were treating Paul, and I held his lifeless body for the last time. He was two months old. Well, after the funeral, I was numb, and then I was depressed. I didn't know what to do, and I didn't know what to do with God. I wanted to hold God at arm's length, because I had asked with everything I had for something, and God had said no. And I didn't think I could trust this God anymore, this God that I thought I knew. But one afternoon, I was struggling, and I couldn't take it anymore, and I just begged God to help me. I said, God, I, I don't know if I even know you, but I need you to draw near to me and be real to me. And I put a worship CD in my car, and all of a sudden, the presence of God filled my car in a way that I cannot explain. But I had this inexplicable joy and this overwhelming peace, and I thought, okay, this is going to be okay. God is walking this with me. And I saw that in my worst nightmare, God was there. When life fell apart, I cried out to God, and he was there. Well, I was talking to a friend named Krista Wells after um, Paul's funeral, and we were just having coffee. And she um, was just asking me about Paul. And then um, she called me the next day. Krista is a singer-songwriter, and she said, I wrote a song about your son. I hope that's okay. I'd love to play it at church in a few weeks. So she did. Well, the song is called Held, and it was recorded by Natalie Grant in 2006, and it actually won a Dove Award. And the song starts off with, 
Two months is too little, but they let him go. They had no sudden healing. Some of you may be familiar with that song, but it was amazing to me to see how many lives God touched with that song. Well, a few months after the song came out, I was in Brugger's Bagels, kind of discouraged, and um, all of a sudden over the radio, the song came on. And it was not Christian radio, so I was pretty taken aback. And all of a sudden I looked over and the guy who was making my sandwich teared up. And he said, hey, do you mind if I just take a minute? My mom died earlier this year, and this song is the only thing that got our family through. So I stood there as this guy was making my sandwich and mouthing the words to the song. And I realized God uses all of our pain. And his presence surrounded me that day and reminded me that when we cry out to God, he is there. For me for the guy making my bagel, for all of us. God will be there when we cry out to him. Well, Paul died 20 years ago next month. And the year after that, I had a daughter. It was 20 years, and now 20 years later, the pain of losing Paul has grown less intense. But the lessons I've learned about God have grown stronger. And the greatest principle I've learned is that when life falls apart, I can cry out to God and he will be there. Six years later, I needed to hang on to that truth. I was pulling on my seatbelt, and it felt like a knife was going through my arm. I had no idea what was going on, saw lots of doctors, and then finally, a few months later, I was diagnosed in Boston with post-polio syndrome. Now, post-polio affects polio survivors decades after Um, the initial onslaught of polio, and it's characterized by escalating pain and weakness. The doctor said, I basically have a set amount of energy, so everything that I do is taking away from the energy that I have. It's like money in a bank. You just make withdrawals. So he said I had to immediately give up all my hobbies. I couldn't waste my energy on frivolous things. And I asked, if I don't do that, what happens? And they said, in 10 years, you won't be feeding yourself. Well, that diagnosis shocked me. It was hard to imagine. I was an artist. I loved to do things with my hands. And that was, it's still hard. I still grieve the loss of what was and won't be. John Piper said this, which was very helpful to me. Occasionally, weep deeply over the life you hoped would be. Grieve the losses. Feel the pain. Then wash your face. Trust God and embrace the life he's given you. So the only way I could embrace the life I had was to cry out to God. And I found out when I did, he was there. Well, I was still adjusting to this loss of my, um, my arms, trying to embrace the life that I had when my husband Dave came home and announced that he was leaving for someone else. Well, I was shocked. The unthinkable in my mind had happened, and it plunged me into the darkest time in my life. I would lock myself in my room and cry till I couldn't cry anymore, and my heart was so closed and my dreams were so buried, I thought life would never be good again. I'm guessing some of you here have come from families that have gone through trauma. Maybe your parents have gotten divorced or you've lost a parent or a sibling, and maybe you've 
called out to God and nothing has happened and you've wondered if God hears or if he cares. I know what that feels like. I cried myself to sleep at night and sometimes I lay in my bed screaming into the darkness, God, why do you hate me? Yet in the middle of that, God met me. Reading the Bible one night, the presence of God filled my room again, just as it had when I was in the car. And I knew that God was going to walk through with me. I didn't know when my life would change, but I did know that God would deliver me. And I saw that once again, when I cried out to God, he was there. Now after that, things were not easy, but God did take care of me. Dave and I got divorced, and two years later, I met and married a wonderful guy named Joel. Well, I started this message with how I questioned God, whether he was good, and if he, if he existed, or if he was good. And some of you sitting here may think that I'm the poster child to prove that God isn't good, or isn't powerful, because of all that I've been through. But I don't feel ripped off, or feel that my life is awful. I wouldn't, Johnny Erickson Tadis says this, she was a quadriplegic who was injured in a diving accident, and she said, I wouldn't trade places with anyone to be this close to Jesus. And I echo that. I wouldn't trade places with anyone to be this close to Jesus. Now many of you here are thinking, I um, hope I never go through any of that, and I'd like to be close to Jesus, but I don't want that. Um, and hopefully you won't face all of the things that I faced, but many of you here will face hard things, and some of you will face some of the things that I've faced. But even more relevant now, today, everyone here has things in their life that they wish were different. So think for me about what your greatest struggle is. What's the hardest thing in your life right now? Think about and, and consider that your hardest struggle may be what God is using to draw you closest to him. What you think is going to break you, God can use to deeply shape you. What you think is going to break you, God can use to deeply shape you. Lilius Trotter, who was a missionary in the 1800s, says this, Take the very hardest thing in your life, the place of difficulty, difficulty, outward or inward, and expect God to triumph gloriously in that very spot. Just there he can bring your soul into blossom. So think about that for me. Consider the hardest thing in your life, whether it's an internal struggle or a difficult circumstance, and expect God to do something extraordinary in that very spot. That may be exactly where God does his most beautiful work in you. God has met me profoundly through my struggles, and they've been all used to shape me. And I've learned through them to cry out to God. But you may all wonder, what does it mean to cry out to God? Well, it means to acknowledge that you can't fix it yourself, surrendering to God, asking him for his help and his mercy. It may be as simple as saying, God, help me, I need you. I can't make it myself. It means tuning out everything else and focusing on God. Now, you can't cry out to God when you're watching TV or Snapchatting or texting or checking the sports scores and then in the downtime, crying out to God. Don't give God the scraps of your time. Turn off your phone and put it away. Turn off the TV. Take away all the distractions. Crying out to God means opening your Bible and reading 
and thinking about what you're reading, not mindlessly reading, which is something that I confess that I have done. But crying out to God means focusing, and focusing for me means writing, writing things that God is showing you, things that you're hearing from God. Pick a psalm and pray through it. Insert your name into it and write down, what is the psalmist doing? How is he feeling? What is the psalmist asking God? And then um, write down what you specifically are asking God. What do you want God to do for you? And after you have read and written down what you want God to do for you and what's going on in your heart, and pray and talk to God like a friend. Pour out your heart to God. And then be silent. Even just for a minute, a minute of silence with God. Often I pray from 1 Samuel, Samuel when God is calling Samuel and Samuel says to him, Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Just wait with God in the silence. And as most of you know, this process of crying out to God requires that you know Jesus. You can't cry out to God apart from Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name, and it is only through Christ that we can possibly have a relationship with God and be right with God. I don't know what is happening in your life, what keeps you up at night, but God knows every minute detail, and he loves you fiercely. Lean into Jesus. Cry out to him. He will be there. He will carry you, and he will comfort you. Through the storms of life, and through the mundane, everyday struggles. The everyday things, troubles with a roommate, classes you don't like, wondering what you're going to do next year, wondering how you're going to pay for college. I mean, all of those things are important. Cry out to him now. God will take the hardest things in your life and do something breathtaking in you and through you. So when life begins to fall apart, or maybe your day just falls apart. Cry out to God. He will be there. He promises that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are always there. Whether we sense your presence or not, you never leave us. And thank you for what you do for us and in us, in our trials. Lord, I pray that you would take all of our struggles and turn them into something breathtaking. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey.